If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hi, everybody. I am not Kim. I'd like to thank Kim for letting me guest host this week. My name is Steve Winterfeld. I'm the advisory CISO for ACMA. And uh, we've come in every now and then and, and filled in for Kim. So we're looking forward to doing that this week. And one of the things we do at Akamai is, you know, we do threat analysis and research around all that threat activity we're seeing across our security controls. And so we put out state of the internet reports. And this week we're putting out a new one. And I brought on one of my uh, co-hosts today, which is Sean Flynn. Sean, could you introduce yourself? Hey, Steve. Thank you for, for having me back. Um, yeah, Sean Flynn, Director of Security Technology and Strategy at Akamai. Uh, one of the things I get to do is talk to uh, security thought leaders within uh, companies and then go back to my product group and make sure that we're meeting the challenges that they're having when it comes to security, both for today as well as making sure we're well positioned for kind of the threats of tomorrow. So you talk about being ready for the threats of tomorrow. Tell me a little bit about your research team and some of the kind of research you guys do there. Sure. Um, we have about 400 researchers uh, within Akamai. Um, we see on any given day up to 30% of all worldwide web traffic. So quite a lot of that research is focusing on that traffic. We're storing about 750 terabytes of attack data uh, every single day. So a lot of that is focusing on kind of the trends, the newest, tech, newest attacks. Um, in addition to that, we also do adversarial research. So we're looking at um, the communities that attackers, hackers, fraudsters uh, visit, looking at the tools that they're utilizing, reverse engineering those tools to better understand how to detect them. Um, and then on top of that, we have researchers like the ones that put out the State of the Internet report. They're taking all these uh, great you know, data points that the other researchers have kind of gathered and put them into uh, a well thought out story that focuses on an industry or, or a topic. Yeah, and I've worked with a number of the data scientists and you know try to understand what's going on, what kind of dashboard uh, insights we can pull. Uh, and I know we have a tremendous dashboards across the, the portals. Um, so Akamai puts out a number of, of reports some are on industries, commerce and finance, others around threat topics, ransomware, API security. Uh, what are we talking about today? So the report that we're talking about today is um, the high stakes of innovation, and that's focusing on financial services. Um, the financial services industry uh, is doing some really interesting things right now when it comes to innovation. They're, they're doing what we call FinTech. Um, they're looking to share financial information across multiple applications, across multiple third parties, kind of making it easier for users to consume their financial information. However, when you're doing something like that, that typically broadens kind of that that threat landscape of what you've got to protect. And that's what we're seeing here. So this is really a kind of a year-over-year -year look at 
uh, attacks at financial services, as well as kind of what should you be concerned of if you're in financial services with the technology trends that, that are going on there. So I know you've been putting this report out a number of years, like you said, uh, every fall putting something like this out. Is there anything new about the report format this year? Yeah, so we're partnering with FSISAC, which uh, stands for Financial Services Information Sharing Analysis Center, I believe. Um, there's ISACs for lots of different industries. The FSISAC is focusing on uh, cybersecurity resiliency within financial services. It's a members-only uh, group, nonprofit organization, which relies on uh, bank members and financial institutions to, uh, to help drive uh, cybersecurity within the uh, industry. And go ahead. I was going to say anything else or? Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, we're, we're, we're diving a little deeper within this report. Um, so typically we focus on an industry. Now we're actually kind of splitting that industry off because financial services is a very broad category. So now we want to segment that out so that you understand um, what we mean. So, you know, different attacks might be focusing on uh, banking where other attacks might be focusing maybe more on insurance. Uh, and other financial uh, services. So we're, we're starting to segment that out in this report so that you have a better understanding of uh, where the attacks are coming from and where they're focusing. Yeah, I know that uh, a lot of the reports not only are, are by sub-vertical of, of wealth management or traders or fintech or, or banking, uh, but also a lot is about regions, you know, North America versus EMEA, which, uh, would be, you know, Europe and Middle East and Africa or APJ, the, the Eastern region. Um, so I always appreciate, you know, when I talk to the board as a CISO, you know, they want to know how are we doing against our peers? How are we doing against other industries? How are we doing against global trends? So it's always nice to have those perspectives. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I know Akamai is a critical provider with FSISAC, so it's great to see great research coming out of there. I know last year you guys did a joint DDoS paper with them, uh, distributed denial of service report with them as well. But we're talking a lot about finance. For those that you know aren't in one of those groups we talked about, is this something that they should stay tuned in for? Absolutely. Uh, financial services typically is a leading indicator when it comes to cyber attacks. Um, if you think about it, you know, some of the biggest targets uh, and definitely one of the biggest targets industry wide is, uh, is, is financial services. I, I keep thinking back to, you know, before there was technology, back when, you know, there was horse and buggies, you know, people were still robbing the banks, right? Um, it's gotten a lot more complex. It's a, it's a lot more uh, removed from the in-person stuff. But uh, the story remains the same. Uh, financial services is a huge target and very cutting edge attacks typically show up there. And then they start to move into other industries as communities start to kind of pick up on those attack methods. Um, so kind of keeping an eye on financial services might help you see what's coming down the road in your industry. So what kind of, of big trends are you seeing in financial services when you talk about you know, different activities that would be potentially leading indicators of future activities for other sectors? So one of the things that we're seeing is, is um, 
attackers are taking advantage of the innovation. I mean, we see this all the time where attackers are incredibly opportunistic. They're looking for kind of that constant edge. Um, so this innovation that we're talking about within financial services is being powered by uh, specific technologies. And, and one is, is APIs. Um, and APIs tend to connect um, applications together. Uh, so, you know, if you want to bring in data from one application to another, typically you're going to see that within uh, being uh, with APIs being used. And so the attackers are focusing on those APIs themselves. In fact, um, we're seeing a 65% increase in attacks at APIs. Um, year over year, we saw about 9 billion attacks specifically um, uh, against uh, the financial services industry. Yeah, and I remember when I was at Nordstrom as a CSO for Nordstrom Bank, uh, Nordstrom spent months building an interface between us and, and a third party so that people could buy through Nordstrom on that third party. And now with APIs, that, that months of work can be reduced to maybe a week because that, that those interfaces, those hooks are established but it's interesting, you know, we've, we've got these hooks that are, are creating great innovation, great business, and now the criminals are grabbing those hooks as well. And so I can see a lot of, of threat activity there. Anything else? Yeah. Um, so, you know, what's interesting about uh, what the attackers are doing right now is that they're focusing on what we call API abuse. Um, and what that means is, you know, they're focusing on the actual APIs and how they're structured. So, um, you know, there are business logic flaws that typically can be taken advantage of um, in certain APIs. Uh, and that's what happens typically when security isn't part of the development process. So there might be broken authentication or, 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 or authorization, uh, data leakage where the API is just has way too much information it's sharing. Um, kind of relying on the application to do the filtering. And these types of issues are very difficult to identify with, with what we consider more traditional application solutions like a web application firewall, because there's not a obvious you know, attack payload within the request. It, the request is gonna look like a normal request. Um, so you know, we need to find new technology and, and really you know, new solutions that focus specifically on APIs. And, and so, you know, the attackers, again, opportunistic, they're focusing on that gap within the security and they're targeting that. So we're seeing a lot of companies um, scramble to try to get uh, security solutions that are addressing that issue. That makes perfect sense, you know, and I could see it, it's an authorized function. I, you know, you put it out there for people to use and then people abuse it, misuse it. And some of the information in aggregate could become a threat. Um, and so, yeah, that visibility always critical. Um, yeah. Anything else on the threat activity side that we're seeing emerging? So um, one of the things that we saw, which is kind of interesting is, is a shift uh, as far as, um, uh, you know, we see DDoS attacks, which is distributed denial of service attacks uh, across our, our platform. And, and um, typically the number one industry that gets hit the most is gaming, um, which is kind of 
interesting, but it, you know, it goes to show uh, gamers are definitely willing to go ahead and attack gaming servers, uh, especially if they, if they had a bad game and they're, they're trying to get back. Um, that had been historically for years, the number one uh, vertical for where we saw the most DDoS attacks. That's changed this year. Um, where we're now seeing that financial services is displacing gaming. They're, they are the number one uh, uh, vertical or, or industry that's being attacked the most. Um, and there's a lot of kind of interesting reasons why that's taking place. Um, and and, and we're, we're seeing shifts in regions as well as far as um, what we expect. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting time right now to, to see uh, um, the, the, the attacks that we're seeing. Yeah, and as I think about distributed knowledge service again, this is a, a large army of computers that have been hacked. And then those that army of computers are being used to do different things. In this case, uh, a, a denial of service attack. And so when I think about this, typically, you know, your, your first is against web page, layer seven attacks. And we've seen new records being established there this year not only in in the size of the attack but how quickly the attack went you know it used to take you know a long time to build up enough volume to set a new record this time that's happening in minutes and and the complexity of the attack typically it was one protocol and and now it might be multiple protocols so the speed scope you know complexity of attacks has really grown lately have we seen any change in in what they're targeting or where they're targeting their activities? Yeah, um, starting last year, we saw a kind of a huge shift. Typically, you expect the US to be the number one uh, region to be attacked. Um, and that's been historically true for, uh, you know, 20 years. Um, we're seeing a change now. Uh, and that change, we believe, is based off of the Russian-Ukraine war. So right now, EMEA is the, uh, and, and Europe is, is being heavily targeted by pro-Russian hacktivists and, and nation-state attackers. And that is interesting. Um, the fact that right now, uh, you know, Europe is seeing 63% of all the DDoS attacks that we see. Um, so, so clearly kind of number one there. Uh, they're also attacking U.S. So U.S. is grouped in. And basically what they're doing is they're, they're looking for allies of Ukraine and targeting them. And what's really interesting about DDoS within financial services is it's a weapon that we typically see from hacktivists in nation state because, you know, you attack a gaming site, you bring down some gaming servers, that's going to upset some gamers, obviously. But it's not going to shake the foundations of trust from in the economy. Um, if you bring down financial services institutions, then the the possibility of um, you know weakening the uh, trust that consumers have on financial institutions within a particular country um, that can be hit, and and that there's so there's ramifications to bringing down financial services that's much bigger than some other industries. So, and that's really what these attackers are focusing on is trying to uh, destabilize that, that uh, consumer trust into financial services. And that would make sense, you know, as we think about, you know, putting in some economic sanctions or putting in sanctions against their banking infrastructure, then a natural way to retaliate could be through this hackivism, especially state-sponsored. I remember in one of our, the State of the Internet reports, there was discussion around 
a, a criminal group called Killnet and how they had transitioned from being purely criminal to having political motivations and, and going against infrastructure that might be, you know, uh, another nation's banking or going after a specific country that had come out in support of the Ukraines or, or things of that nature, very much more a political. But when we think about the criminal groups themselves, what is their normal business model? So um, the hacktivists, obviously, they want headlines. Um, they want to, uh, to, to, you know, it's all about the media and exposure. Um, there's other attackers, though, that are looking for, and, kill, and actually KillNet used to be more of a of DDoS uh, extortion uh, group, but now is, is more doing hacktivism. Um, but there's DDoS extortion. So that's kind of another area where you've got to be concerned about DDoS, which is um, where you are threatening to bring down somebody's websites or, or bring down their data centers um, if they don't pay you in some sort of cryptocurrency. Um, and, you know, if you think about financial services, again, how sensitive that industry is, you know, DDoS extortion is definitely um, something that we've, we've seen periodically within financial services. Yeah, it reminds me of watching those old movies and, and the mafia characters would come in and threaten the store owner, if you pay us for protection so nobody comes in and, and breaks or robs a store. Uh, yeah, that same thought process. Yep. Uh, it's an interesting business model. I know I've read reports from the SOTI on ransomware doing the same kind of thing where, you know, come in and encrypt and, and you pay us uh, a fee and we'll give you a key to unlock that data. And then the third way is kind of that data hostage, you know, stealing data and saying, we're going to take this data public if you don't pay us an extortion fee. In fact, I just saw coming out this week a news story on, you know, first generation of ransomware was, you know, pay us for a key. Second generation was double dipping and kind of pay us or we'll release your data. And then they started applying pressure and they would contact the person's data who is going to be released. So, you know, if you had a, a, a commercial entity that had somebody's bit, they'd go and say, hey, we're going to release your data unless you go tell that vendor to pay us. And now I saw where those hacker groups have actually filed an SEC, Security Exchange Commission, complaint. And there's a law that says if you have ransomware attack and you're offline, you have to report within a certain number of days. And that criminal group went in and said, we're filing a complaint because we know they were attacked with ransomware and didn't report it to the SNC publicly within the required time frame. So, I mean, it's just their innovation and just their gutsiness of what they're willing to do is amazing. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that really is. It's the guts of, <laughs> we know that they've been attacked because we're the ones that attacked them. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's nuts. So another thing I read in the report that I find interesting is the increase in zero days attack. Yeah. What's going on with that? Um, so, you know, that, that, that kind of starts out with there's, there's a huge kind of movement and kind of a reliance on third-party software. Um, you can think of, you know, SolarWinds. You can think of uh, Log4j, Spring4Shell. Um, those are all zero days that kind of came in from, from third-party software. Uh, open source code's another one. 
Um, there has been an, an, uh, a tremendous amount of, of zero days that have been discovered in the last several, really the last 18 months. And that, that the discovery of zero days is really uh, fueling the, um, the web and application attacks that we're seeing hitting, um, hitting financial services. And you know, what they're trying to do is see if those applications are vulnerable to those, um, to those attacks. Uh, so you know, it's definitely a concern, especially when we think about, you know, Akamai has kind of done a study on this and, and we're estimating that within less than 24 hours of a zero day being reported, uh, the exploit being put out into the public, less than 24 hours, uh, attackers are kind of jumping on board. They're, they're, they're stopping the, the normal things that they were doing and they're, they're jumping on board to do that exploit. So it really does shorten the time uh, that companies have to uh, you know, isolate those vulnerabilities and, and, and uh, protect themselves from them. Yeah, I remember getting the Wayback Machine here. You know, you'd hear about a vulnerability and then a month later, somebody might have operationalized it and you'd see it in the wild actually taking effect. And to hear that that's down to hours just really compresses what the security operations center has to deal with. By yeah. the time something comes public to when it's done, I know Akamai was recently involved in, in where the large providers get pre-notice and, and make sure our capabilities are up to date to, to be protecting on day one when the vulnerability is announced broadly. Um, and, and really, you know, we talk about this, we talk about DDoS and, and I have a playbook on how to deal with DDoS. And I have a playbook for, for zero days, but then I realized I needed multiple playbooks. You know, you brought up a great point. I have a playbook for protocols like Log4j. Uh, you know, that is a very technical. Where am I using it in my network? How am I going to fix that? You know, I'm going to protect at the edge. I have to internally segment. I have to patch as soon as I can. Then, you know, you have a product or supply chain. And, and this is one where, you know, you, know, you could be using something, uh, uh, pick, pick a capability. In fact, there's another crazy story out there right now, solar winds. At one point, you know, we, we all had to figure out if we were using solar winds. And SEC just filed criminal complaints against the CISO for solar winds on that one. Um, so the SEC is is getting a lot more involved in, in things uh, today than they used to. But this is another case where there's a, a supply chain. You know, uh, it might have been something like we used a file manage a file sharing management company that was taken over. Another zero day could be something like a VPN. You know, I use a certain brand of VPN. VPNs have been around forever. They've got legacy issues. There's more and more zero days. So do I use it? What's the zero day? What's the fix? Firmware, we had Spectre meltdown. IoT or medical devices, uh, we have a, a number of those. And then, you know, ultimately, a lot of these we're talking about is emerging malware, want to cry or, or pick your flavor there. So, so many zero days. And I find it fascinating that, you know, companies are paying a bounty for zero days. Uh, nation state and intelligence groups are are paying to to get zero days to weaponize and now to hear criminals are paying for zero days 
just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Lockbit, which is the, the biggest ransomware group right now, uh, as far as uh, volume of attacks, you know, they have their own research group and their research group is focusing on zero days. That's kind of their model is they find a zero day, they attack. Once that's matured and, and it's no longer a huge vulnerability, their job is to go find another zero day. If they don't, they're, they're, you know, they, they're not able to attack again. So they're relying on finding those zero days uh, and taking advantage of it. And you, you know, you kind of, you mentioned there's a lot of complexity when you're dealing with third parties too, because like you said, do I patch? Well, what if there's not a patch? What if it's a service that is being managed by a third party? Uh, now I've got to go reach out to that third party and get an understanding of where are they with their patching or how they're going to resolve it. And, you know, that makes it, it it's definitely a lot more complex than it used to be as far as um, trying to figure out what you're going to do. So like you said, it's not a, it's not a single run book. Um, it's almost like you've, you've got to really got to go. The, it's almost like a logic, you know, you, if this go here, if this go here, if this go here, you know, is it third party, go to the third party vendor relationship person. It's, uh, it gets very complex. And then as we talk about this, we see, you know, the shift away from predominantly uh, attacking through stuff like phishing uh, and, and focus on more on directly attacking infrastructure. Um, I know you talked about APIs and abuse. Is there anything going on or, or what are we doing with this kind of this move to open banking and, and all this FinTech integration and, and that kind of stuff? So one of the concerns with some of that is really around uh, aggregators. Um, so if you think about it, you know, one of the trends that we're seeing is, um, is, is you know, ha allowing customers, and if you think about it, it makes sense. So you allow a customer to see all their loans in a single screen or manage all their credit cards in a single screen. That makes a lot of sense. Think about how easy that is. Um, however, aggregators aren't usually held to the same standard as financial services. Financial, the financial services industry is very heavily regulated. Aggregators don't necessarily, aren't necessarily held up to the same uh, standards as the uh, financial services companies. The other side of that is that aggregators are, are just nice, juicy targets for attackers. Uh, you know, they're doing the attacker's job for them if you kind of look at it the right way. You're saying, oh, you're bringing data sources from all these other banks and you get to put it in one location? Thank you, now I just need to attack you and I get all that information, that's, that's perfect. Um, anytime you see data aggregators beyond financial services, there's this, this could be healthcare, it could be in lots of different things. Um, those are big targets and uh, the more we get into this data sharing and, and aggregation of data, the more of a concern that, that, uh, that, that we need to have on data aggregators. Yeah, I'm gonna see that as a bank. I'm, I'm very worried about managing the, the trust that's been given to me to manage somebody's wealth. Yeah. And so, you know, are they, are they using secure communications? Are they, you know, using encryption? Are they, how are they doing identity management? Uh, and a lot of this is not like we have a legal agreement. It's just they're connecting to my open hooks to interface with us. So, so you know, monitoring and managing that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, some of these are so basic that it's, you know, the, the, the end user gives the credentials and then those credentials are used by bots to go ahead and, and grab that data. So there isn't an agreement between the aggregator and the financial services group. It's, it's more of an agreement between the aggregator and the user 
but the financial services, you know, but they're grabbing from the financial services industry. And, and um, like you said, there's, there's this like, where's the responsibility for, for securing that data? You mentioned bots. Let's kind of shift over there for a minute. So sure. earlier we talked about these, these bot armies being used for DDoS. Uh, what else are you seeing bots used for and, and what activity have we seen there? So when it comes to financial services, you know, we saw uh, within 18 months a 1.1 trillion bots uh, hit financial services, which is obviously a tremendous amount of, of bots. It was up by 69%. What's interesting is kind of what they're doing. Um, some of it we expected and some of it uh, maybe we didn't expect uh, or maybe in, in, the, in, this, in, the, in the volumes that we saw it. So we've got kind of a split. Uh, you've got bots that are doing credential stuffing. And credential stuffing is when you, um, you grab a list of uh, leaked usernames and passwords, you give them to a bunch of bots, and you tell the bots to go try those usernames and passwords on different targeted websites. So that's expected. Financial services has always been dealing with uh, fraud, account takeover, account abuse. So seeing bots doing that is, is kind of uh, anticipated. What's Kind of a newer trend is we're seeing bots scrape the website. Now, when I think of web scrapers, um, I'm thinking of traditional web scrapers are probably going to scrape inventory or pricing, um, you know, give somebody a competitive advantage over another company because they know the pricing or they know how much inventory they have. What's different about scraping in financial services is the motivation for that is very different. The motivation for scraping a, a financial services website is to basically get a copy of the financial services website and set that up uh, for phishing. So when we see an increase in web scraping, it's because we're seeing an increase in phishing campaigns where someone is creating a duplicate, a fake uh, bank site and trying to trick users into going to that site and providing credentials. Uh, so definitely kind of a, an interesting trend that we're seeing now. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, it all circles back to, you know, let's take my dad, for example. Love my dad to death, but his password is the town he lives in and the number 42 for everything. And so if his password gets compromised on his grocery score account, then somebody can try it on the bank and get right in. And that's that, you know, doing that at scale, it's just taking my dad's credentials and trying it against 25 banks and figuring out which one he has. So and what that makes that perfect sense. What, what was the <laughs> And so, you know, it, it is so interesting that, you know, we've got to, to figure out, you know, how to, how to stop that how to understand what's going on, because that is something that scales because, you know, what, a 5% return on, on credentials may be a good payday. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that all makes sense to me. Uh, anything else you're seeing in bots? So, um, yeah, the, the, uh, one other thing to add was, uh, you know, we referenced within the report uh, kind of a, a – uh, a stat that we got from uh, from a report that we saw in Okta, which cited that 50% um, uh, of logins in financial services credential stuffing. 
which to me was staggering. It means half of a website's logins are going to be an attempt to get into somebody else's account. Um, now, the good news is this is nothing new for financial services uh, industry. This industry is, is uh, I think, done a great job in trying to stay ahead of these types of attacks, uh, provided security around it. Some of the most recent kind of updates to logins, for example, most financial industry or services, uh, most banks don't allow you to, to use an email address anymore, which was very common and, and one, of the, one of the easiest ways to get credentials. So they're forcing you to do that. We're also starting to see multi-factor authentication. So even though I'm, seeing, I'm, I'm, I'm providing this kind of data on the attacks, I definitely want to mention that you know financial services has very secure uh, or very mature security groups. This isn't really anything new to them. Um, it's just kind of uh, a day in the life of of somebody who happens to be in cybersecurity for finance. Yeah, and it's interesting. Again, we talk about innovation. I know more and more of those are getting more sophisticated in how they do that credential stuffing. More and more human involvement. Uh, it's that constant, that foot race, you know, we get a little ahead, they come up with more innovation, we come a little ahead. You know, are you seeing anything that that they're changing away from just stuffing to, to other parts of validation? Well, so as companies are hardening their security, what we're seeing is kind of, um, and I always equate this to, because I love the, the, the scenario of a house. If the front door is locked, try the back door. If the back door is locked, try you know the side door or window. That's the attacking methodology. So as financial institutions are hardening um, their own applications, what we're starting to see is an increase in um, uh, the attempt to get uh, data from those applications from hacking third-party scripts that that application might might grab. So for example. Um, a basic application might have a script from a third party to serve uh, an ad. Well, what if some, an attacker can go to that third party that might not be as secure as that financial services company, hack that third party, change that script so that that script, when it's called by the financial services application, instead of serving an ad or maybe in addition to serving the ad, uh, also takes credential information and sends it to a command and control server or a credit card information. Um, that is what we're seeing an increase of. We call it web skimming. And that's, uh, we're seeing a 30% increase in that uh, within financial services. Yeah, I remember, you know, I really didn't pay attention to my JavaScript environment until suddenly I'm reading about MageCart. Yeah. And MageCart was probably that, that first seminal moment where it's that paradigm shift in how I think about my environment. Um, and so now I've got this, this, all these scripts out there and and these scripts can be you know marketing could put a script out there that is doing customer analytics uh they might put something in there that is is saying if you see customers doing this send them an email about this discount whatever it is um so many different groups you know i can i can outsource one of my capabilities like uh if i was a, a real uh, commerce and, and selling stuff, I might outsource PCI. And so that's another something in my JavaScript that, that's taking that over. Huge environment. It's like a starburst of complexity. 
And I remember as I'm looking in these environments for the first time, realizing that these third parties have vulnerabilities, that they do different protocols or different level of maturities. I'm watching, you know, up to 75% of the scripts change, um, both first parties that I own and third parties that others own in a 90-day period. And so very, very, very complex, hard to understand what's going on, and then hard to understand what bad behavior is. Yeah. Uh, what are you seeing uh, as, as things that are changing in that environment? So what we're seeing is, is obviously, um, uh, as you said, it, it's a major issue. It's getting worse. Um, in fact, it's getting so bad that now uh, PCI compliance, in fact, I think it's PCI uh, DSS version 4, which is coming out soon or going, going to be enforced soon, uh, is now making companies responsible for the third-party scripts that they're their own application is calling and saying, you need to be responsible for what is happening at the browser. Uh, you need to be able to, so if somebody is doing something like that, you've got to police that. Um, so we're seeing kind of, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm all for that kind of compliance because it's kind of forcing the, the kind of the, the needle over to security as far as, um, you know, protecting that particular area. So now, what we're going to start seeing is a lot more focus on how do we secure those third-party scripts and our own scripts, um, but not just secure them, and, and, but, but how do we secure them at runtime as they're being executed at the browser? Fascinating. And, and you know, I, I'm now just thinking about I've got stuff on-prem, I've got stuff in the cloud, and now this is just kind of a third environment to think about, you know, that that interaction with the, the web browser, the Explorer or Chrome or whatever you're using that, you know, how is that being handled? Who's doing it? What's in there? Uh, so many de devices, so many diverse infrastructures and environments. Wow, we've just talked about so much today. I, I'm a little overwhelmed with everything <laughs> the threat's doing. What can we do to defend ourselves? Uh, well, that's there's there's there is you know a silver lining. There's good news. Um, so I think when it comes to zero days, because we talked about how quick zero days uh, are to uh, for exploits and, and to see attacks, uh, visibility is key. Um, and I think you know the good news is a lot of companies, well you know back in 2021 when they had to deal with Log4j during the holiday season, um, kind of learned that lesson that you know. You can't spend days or weeks trying to figure out what assets have that vulnerability. You've got to have solutions that can provide visibility into your assets so that you can quickly identify what's how, you know, first, how big of a scope of a problem is this? Um, where are those assets? How can I put a security control between those assets and the rest of my network or the internet? And so when it comes to Zero days, I think the key there, I think, is, is uh, visibility. How fast can you uh, identify where the problem is? Because if you can't do that, you can't fix it, right? So that's the first step. Uh, the good news about API security, there are definitely solutions now out there that focus specifically on API abuse. So, um, and those solutions are, are, are really geared towards providing visibility as well as um, being able to identify some of those complex attacks. Yeah, and, and I like both those because, you know, 
On on the first for zero days, again, going back to the, the tired example of a protocol, Log4j, you know, we want things like an SBOM, software build of materials to say, where do we, where are we using that software? Yeah. Uh, it may be something like uh, segmentation, uh, you know, having, you talked about data flows earlier, being able to see the data flows and look for that protocol and the data flow between our segment network capacities, whether you're down to the server level or the application level or, or just broad network groupings. Um, I know that one of the things, you know, as we look at as zero trust as a uh, capability, both that access and segmentation, Akamai put out a, a new report, State of Segmentation, recently, combined with a, an external uh, company. And I was fascinated to see in that, that if you do segmentation properly, you can go from minimizing dwell time from once you discover something to removing it going from you know 15 hours to four hours in time to remediate or even preventing lateral movement in the case of something like ransomware from 14 hours to three hours, that's a huge change in, in your ability to rapidly minimize dwell time and reduce that, that level of impact. Yeah. Um, other thoughts on mitigation? Um, you know, we, we talked quite a bit about DDoS. DDoS isn't really a, a new attack um, a vector. It's been out for a while. Um, you know, the good news is with that, there are definitely some, some great solutions out there for, for DDoS. So, you know, first is have a plan, uh, have a runbook, know who to call. You know, who, who are you going to call? Not Ghostbusters. This is actually DDoS. Um, but that's the idea, right? You need to have a plan on how to do that. And you've got to do that before the attack. If you're not thinking about DDoS before the attack, you're going to be in serious trouble when it happens because you're going to be under pressure. And you know, we don't take, we don't, we don't do well when it comes to thinking clearly under pressure. Um, and a lot of times not having a run book means that you're you know, what could have been resolved in a couple of hours ends up, ends up being an issue where it, it takes an entire day because of the, this lack of being able to, to think calmly. Um, so, you know, DDoS solution, run books. When it comes to passwords, I would yeah. say, oh, sorry. Well, I, I, will, I will jump in. First of all, I know there's another Ghostbuster movie coming out. Just got through Halloween. Next Halloween, it may take half a day to watch all the Ghostbusters. I'm just saying there's a lot of Ghostbusters out there and there's a lot of DDoS out there. <laughs> and so with that, I think one of the keys is doing exercises, not only having the run book, but going through. And I know as, as you know, CSO of, of a bank, you're going to have the OCC and, and the feds coming in to do an audit. Uh, and, and even if you're doing real world stuff, cause you get enough attacks, you need to say, did we follow our run book? You know, what are our lessons learned? But, but those exercises are so critical. And one of the things I really enjoy, maybe not as much on DDoS as more the API security, is you're always going to hear me pound on the benefits of OWASP. OWASP has put out a, a top 10 Whoa. vulnerabilities for things like your web page. And then recently, the top 10 vulnerabilities for API. So a great tool to go talk to your, your coders about what they should be doing, what they should be avoiding. Um, and they just came out with a large language model uh, top 10. 
So for those that are thinking about going into generative AI or standing up their own instance, a private instance of that, a lot of, uh, of my peers are, are trying to figure out where they might be able to leverage that. There's a top 10 vulnerabilities over there. So OWASP is a great resource. The second, more on the exercise side, is the MITRE attack framework. If you go into MITRE attack framework and, and pull up the navigator, you mentioned CLOP earlier, I think, or Lockbit it might have been. And, and you can say across these, all these different things, you have to gain access. You have to do reconnaissance. You have to exfil data. There's, there's like 10 to 15 steps to successfully execute this. And it will show you for Lockbit where those exactly what they do. And so if you run, run an exercise, you can have your red team or your pen test team go execute those specific plays to replicate somebody like Lockbit or APT12 or, or whoever you think the appropriate threat is. And I think that you can even do those in a tabletop exercise talking about it or a technical exercise running that. But those exercises are just so vital. Yeah. So I cut, cut you off. I'll turn it back over. Well, and just to add to that, you know, my my parents used to always say, you got to make a list, right? Like, you're, you're freaking out about whatever it is because you haven't made a list of all the things you got to do. Once you make a list and you see how what it is, you can you can go ahead and, and, and create a plan. I like MITRE because I feel like it's, they've made a list. You know, it's like, it's like it's right there. You see the different attack vectors. You see what needs to be done. And hopefully that actually will alleviate some of that stress that you're feeling about being overwhelmed. Because sometimes you get reports like this, and you're like, this is more stuff I got to worry about. Um, well, the good news is there's there's frameworks to, to kind of help with that um, and hopefully lower your stress levels. And build on, to build on your build on, um, <laughs> you know, I like it because you can say, I have this control in reconnaissance. I have web application firewall to prevent reconnaissance. Uh, to prevent XFIL, I have secure web gateway to prevent this. So you can see, do I have security controls in each and every one of those columns and that gives you multiple chances to interdict the threat as opposed to just protecting at the edge or just protecting in these two places. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal resource. You know, you, we, we talked about PCI um, and compliance um, earlier, you know, and I know we're, we're, we're kind of, we're talking about financial services, you know, what, and I know that with your background, you've, you've got quite a bit of compliance background. What other compliance should we be kind of looking at um, or, 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 you know, when it comes to financial services? Well, you know, a lot of us think about compliance as a dirty word or, or you know, compliance is not security. And, and so ultimately, I think a compliance, compliance can be a stick when you're going to fight for money. Um, but compliance can be dangerous if you stop your security program as soon as you're quote unquote compliance. And we all know a lot of the companies we've seen were fully compliant and yet they were compromised. And so when I think about compliance, the first probably the major topic lately has been privacy. You know, and, and where did we see the most compliance driven is probably GDPR out of the EU and that we saw a lot of different, you know, U.S. states implementing, using that as an example. Uh, and, and we've seen, that was kind of the first wave of, of 
state compliance. We haven't really had any federal. And then the next was we've seen some laws around data sovereignty and data localization. Data sovereignty is controlling who monetizes the data. Data location or is, you know, keeping the data within where the laws can control it. So if you keep all the European data about people, PII, um, in Europe, then European laws can apply. If it's in the United States, it's harder to apply those laws. And so, you know, the second is, is we haven't seen much state to state, but we've seen a lot of countries, China, Germany, you know, Russia, India, a, a lot of countries are now saying where the data resides is something we have to pay attention to. And then, the, the, go ahead. No, I was just, I was going to throw in Brazil, but but no, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I I feel like uh, compliance can be a double edged sword. Uh, I love how it moves the needle in certain areas, and then there's that whole cringe of is this going to be an over compliance move, right? Where, um, like you said, sometimes it's it's not compliance isn't security, uh, you know, and it's more for an audit. And so, what's coming down the pike? Well, the first you talked about PCI. You need to make sure. Whether or not you're having credit cards, I think, you know, understanding what's going on in your script environment, typically JavaScript environment, you know, that's critical. That's the right thing to do for your customer. And if you have anything to do with credit cards, now is the time to get ready for that. The second is around resiliency. We're seeing more and more discussions around this. So five, 10 years ago, how many companies went out of business because of a cyber incident. Not that many. Now it's, you know, in the double and in some cases almost triple digits. Business email compromise, taking so much money away that, you know, company didn't have the ability to pay the payroll. Another area is around ransomware. And so more and more we see companies going out of business. And so we're seeing a regular turn push towards resiliency. You know, and it's different, you know, cyber resiliency is different than business continuity or disaster recovery. Here, what we're looking at is how to, how to survive in a highly contested environment. And so DORA, Digital Operational Resiliency Act, is coming out of Europe. And it's time to right now start thinking about some of our policies and our procedures. And, and how are we going to ensure that we understand how to be resilient uh, it's, you know, those, those compliance requirements are a great starting point. Always think of compliance as a starting point. But that's an opportunity for, for us to really sit down and say, what are we doing in this realm? Yep. So I feel like I hijacked some of your solutions. You were about to talk about, I think, multi-factor authentication earlier. Well, for what? end users, yeah, I was going to say, for end users, just password management solutions. Um, man, I'm such a big fan of, of, of having a password manager. Uh, it allows me to, to not have to reuse passwords and I have nice complex passwords, but you only need to remember one password. So that's my little spiel. I don't make any money from them, but I'm a big fan of them. From a company perspective, multi-factor authentication is definitely uh, what's needed. We're, we're seeing that with financial services, uh, kind of more of an adoption of that. That's great news. Uh, at some point, I'd love to see it move beyond SMS and email. But, um, you know, I think that's a, that's a start. But again, 
we need people to turn it on. Uh, you can turn that on for something like your your Gmail. And I'm not sure everybody has, and, and it adds more friction. And so it's that constant balance we have of how much friction do I want? Uh, the friction here is, is responding and, and typing in a code typically versus how much security do I want? Yeah. Um, you know, and so password with, you know, <laughs> maybe one letter on the end is probably not a great password and not having MFA, well, I hope you have no value associated with whatever that password is protecting. Because if it's any personal or, or financial risk, you know, bad. If, if there's no risk, fine, use that. But, you know, all your personal email, probably worth MFA. All your, you know, different things, let's turn that stuff on. Um, just so, so important. Uh, again, going back to my dad, uh, the password manager I got for him was as simple as, uh, and this is again, trying to get him off that one password for everything. Uh, and I'll tell you another funny story. Uh, one time I was talking to my kids and they said, well, we're using the family's password. I'm like, the what? <laughs> like the family password. I'm like, what's the family password? And so apparently, I, I do have a common password I use for sites that have no risk, that I just, you know, I don't care if they get compromised. Well, they'd been using that as their password for everything. And this was many years ago, but still, it's, it's amazing what you discover. And so um, in that case, you know, it, it is, even if I got my dad one of those address books back when you, you know, used to write everybody's name and, and there was those little alphabetized uh, tabs. And I, I have a, that, you know, or you can have an electronic one. H however you do it, please think about risk every day. You know, at work, with your family, as you're, as you're setting up the culture of security with your kids, um, please think about risk. Think, think about how you're approaching this. You know, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about finance is it's one of the most attacked industries. I think, you know, I think you were saying number one in DDoS, number one in phishing, and number three in API? Yep. What, I mean, and so we're seeing what's happening here, and this is an opportunity for us to react to that. So um, if you want to read the report, please go out to um, – if you just Google Akamai State of the Internet Report or Akamai Threat Research, you'll quickly find all of our State of the Internet Reports. We just released one uh, this week. It is kind of an end of the year summary. It's, we talked to some of our analysts and said, what was the most interesting story of the year? Uh, so we have those reports. The, the State of Segmentation Report is out there as well. Um, kind of take us home here and give us some final advice there. Uh, focus on visibility. If you can see your data flows uh, north and south, east and west, a lot of what we're talking about can be identified. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. So, you know, as, as, as we were talking about earlier, for, for zero days, for API, for all of this, you know, it really does come down to visibility. Uh, you can't protect what you don't know about. You know, API, zombie APIs, uh, you know, that's an API that, that somebody built and then just forgot about. 
rogue API, somebody going out with good intentions, but not following the security processes. Um, so many things out there happening. You know, we talked about for, for years, I wasn't paying attention to that JavaScript environment until suddenly it was a threat vector. Uh, and it was always a threat vector, but I mean, it just didn't get up to that, that top point. So that's some great advice. Um, I don't think we have any questions. So with that, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. <laughs>